Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, first up, if you're listening to this, before you go do whatever you're going to do while you listen, like drive your car or cook dinner or something, um, go to on iTunes or on Stitcher or what have you and give this here podcast a super good review because that's helpful, real helpful. And it's like testimony to the uh, stinginess and cruelty of society that Less than 1% of the people who listen to this show have gone and given it a review on iTunes. In other news, we get a lot of people always asking about hats and shirts and stuff. The merch store is like back up and running at TheMeatEater.com. And another thing that comes up is people are always, after they listen to shows, um, wondering about books, music, ideas that were discussed on the show so but but if you go to the meatiercom slash podcasts on the same place there that you can read descriptions of the shows we have a thing where we it's like show notes right so you can find links to books ideas articles that spring out of that selection is inspired by conversations we have here on the show. Cause we're constantly getting things that people are like, yeah, you guys are talking about some book. I didn't really catch what book it was. I don't want to listen to the whole damn thing all the way over again to figure out what book it was. That's the place to go find out stuff like that. So the meateater.com slash podcast to find that kind of stuff, the merch store to find all kinds of cool stuff. And we got a new meteor podcast t-shirt out and go leave your review, which is real helpful. Now watch this segue. Get ready, because when you go there, you'll find notes about books and whatnot, and some of those books are written by our guest, Dan Flores. 
whose house we're in right now. On can I say the road you live on? Uh, yeah. I don't want to say that. Well, you can. I mean, so we're 17 miles southwest of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Not in Madrid. No, we're not in uh, Madrid. We're not in Cerrillos, uh, but kind of in the vicinity. And within looking distance of what might be the oldest mine, a turquoise mine, the oldest mine in North America. Yeah, uh, very possibly the oldest mine in what is now the United States. I mean, we're sitting here on the couch looking out the screen door, and that mine is in view about uh, four miles away. It's called Chalchihuitl, which is uh, an Aztec word. Um, not that the uh, the Aztec Indians lived here. This was Pueblo country, but the Pueblos traded turquoise all the way down into Central America, and uh, that turquoise made a really big splash among the Aztecs who have a glyph for this little mountain where the mine is in the Temple of the Sun in Mexico City, or, or did have it. And so, uh, yeah, this is a pretty major site for ancient North American archaeology. What did the... What did the people here call it? Well, I don't... Or is that not known? Yeah, I don't think they... I don't, I'm not sure what the word was that the Pueblo Indians had for it, but there was a Pueblo here about five or six miles away that was basically a Pueblo of miners responsible for mining the turquoise in the Cerrillos Hills. Uh, that Pueblo was called a San Marcos Pueblo, and it was part of the Chaco Canyon Complex, a thousand years ago, in this part of the world, there was a major civilization that was basically orchestrated by a place we now call Chaco, which is a national historical park in northwestern New Mexico. And it had far-flung communities all over this part of the world, all the way over into Arizona, present-day Colorado, Utah, New Mexico. And this was a mining town that was part of that complex. Is it, uh, is it true that Chaco can't? I think you told me this before. That at Chaco Canyon, in present day, we didn't really understand it until you get up above it in aircraft and look down on it to yeah. understand how it's configured? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I might have said something like that in some of our conversations from years ago when we were in Missoula. And the reason that's the case is because what archaeologists have learned about Chaco fairly recently in the last 25 or so years is that a lot of the buildings, Pueblo Benito, for example, which was kind of the Indian version of the Vatican, really, uh, in North America a thousand years ago, it was laid out according to solstices and equinoxes the sun rises over the chaco valley at solstice and equinox and so the lines of the buildings were laid out in that way and what archaeologists realized when i mean i think they knew this for quite a while but looking down on it from aerial views they realized that this is a civilization that built an elaborate road network across the southwest and um I mean, you can kind of see those roads when you're on the ground, when you're over there hiking around the cliffs, but you can really see them, I think, a lot better from the air. And what people realized looking down on the Chaco and complex from the air was that these roads were built probably for religious reasons, just straight as an arrow across the landscape. And so unlike modern road engineers who will 
take roads around mountains and follow streams up canyons and things. These guys just, for whatever the reason, they shot these roads straight through the countryside. And if a butte got in the way, they just went right over the top of it and maintained that straight line. And these were roads that were used. I mean, people were hauling the the vigas, the beams that they used to build all these giant constructions in Chaco from the Chuska Mountains 50 miles away over these roads. And these guys who were basically pissing these logs from the mountains, great big ponderosa pines, were having to go up and down the topography because the roads just went straight. And there was probably a reason for it. I mean, it wasn't just done because that's like the practical way to build a road because it's not practical. No, it's not really practical. I mean, what you would, you know, what animals do and what most road engineers do is you see a butte in front of you, you go around yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but so that's what. Steve, you might have a little of that blood in you because that's kind of the way you hike. Yeah, I do. Most of us tend to I sort do. of go around and with the flow of the landscape. And when you see a butte, you're like, I'll just go right up and over it. Yeah, that's why they call me the inconsiderate mountain goat hiker. <laughs> inconsiderate mountain goat hiker. <laughs> and and Dan, you were saying that some of that, so some of the turquoise taken out of here, you, you're saying that uh, there, there was awareness of this mine all the way down in the Aztec Empire and that it seems as though, just based on faunal remains, that these guys were getting macaws and things from the jungles they were indeed. And they had those materials up here, and in turn, their rocks, their turquoise was down there. Yeah, it was It was a, a luxury good trade. I mean, we don't think you know of Native people so much in the context of luxury goods, but, I mean, they were... You know, they were just like us. They were motivated by the same uh, human nature impulses that we are to express status. And so turquoise, both turquoise and the things that the Pueblo people in, in the American Southwest traded farther south for turquoise were all luxury goods. And the macaws, I mean, and this is a kind of a phenomenon of this part of the world because you can go into Santa Fe. I mean, I've got some scattered around here. There's a pot with macaw feathers in it right there. In most of the shops in Santa Fe still today, you can go in and buy macaw feathers because this is a bird we've known for the last thousand years around here that was a sacred bird to the native people. They ha- doesn't range here, obviously. This yeah. is a desert. They haul these things live up from the jungles of Central America, and the priests kept them in cages and treated them as kind of sacred beings, I think because of the brilliant plumage, the coloration of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a... Not for their beautiful song. Oh, my God. No. The inconsistency between a macaw, (laughs) his appearance, and his song, where it sounds like, like he's the most beautiful bird and he sounds like like a dying, what I'd imagine a diseased, dying pterodactyle to sound like. But we we're just down in South America with some Makushi guys, and they still hunt macaws for the feathers. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And now you're like, we're in the world where it's like we have dyes and all these fabrics, and you can buy like blaze pink shit on the internet, right? 
But they're like still like, yeah, those feathers are amazing looking. And they were saying that macaws are difficult to hunt. They hunt them with a bow. They're difficult to hunt, but there's a particular type of, of date tree or a, a, I'm sorry, a particular type of palm that has like a date-like fruit on it. And they said that the macaws like those so much that you need to watch for one of those trees to fruit. And that's the only time that a macaw will let down his guard. <laughs> and if you wait under the tree, you might get a macaw with your bow. And the rig they use is just a little barbed point that they try to hit the macaw with it. And then the tip falls away from the arrow, but it's connected to the arrow shaft with a piece of string. And the macaw get tangled up and they're able to climb up. And they're able to climb up and get it? And get their feathers. And they still produce, they still, out of macaws and toucans and stuff, they s- produce ceremonial headdresses. Yeah, well, that was, um, uh, you know, even a thousand years ago and quite likely farther back than that because there are macaws on the rock art all around us. I mean, there's a rock art site um, about 12 miles away from here. Uh, that has a whole kind of base relief of macaws painted on it. And at Petroglyph National Monument, uh, which is out west of Albuquerque, uh, on the Mesa on the west side of the Rio Grande River, um, I mean, I've seen macaws painted there too. And some of this rock art is older than the Chaco and civilization. So that indicates to me that there's been a fascination with macaws and obviously a trade going down uh, all the way into Central America from the Southwest for longer than the Chaco and civilization existed in this part of the world. Another interesting connection between New Mexico and, and, and maybe further south is that the first time a European described a buffalo or bison, it was Cortez or one of his chroniclers ran into it in Montezuma's personal collection. Yeah, in his zoo. That's right. Maybe five, six hundred miles south of, maybe more than that, south of the furthest southern point that that animal could have ranged. That's right, because they didn't, they, they clearly didn't cross the Chihuahuan Desert, which is hundreds of miles of pure desert. Now, you know, we think that bison did, uh, range sporadically down in the northern Chihuahua state into some of the grasslands there. So definitely in Sonora. Yeah, Sonora, yeah. Chihuahua, but not as far south as so that would have had that would have been an animal uh that Cortez saw that probably was taken as a calf down to the the courts of the Aztec capital and became part of the and official was zoo. Gifted to him or traded to him some probably yeah. That's always been my thought about it. You know, there's another thing I wanted to ask. I want to talk more about that stuff, but another thing I wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned this one time, you haven't explained it to me yet. (laughs) You were saying that you were going to tell me or could tell me or were open to discussing why why people's houses are 72 degrees. (laughs) A thing I often tease my wife about is I'm like, I've identified my wife's like general comfort range. I'm like, there's a four degree window in which you don't, you, that you don't, take steps to like change your clothes to accommodate and she like from 68 to 72 yes when it falls outside of that four degree thing i always find she's doing something to like she's like losing layers or gaining layers to keep up with it you know absolutely yeah 
Well, I, I used to pose this question to uh, classes at the University of Montana, and I would often do it at the end of the first class meeting sort of for further cogitation after they left the class. So I want you to think about this question. Why is it that no matter whether you live in Tucson, Arizona, or in Fairbanks, Alaska, you set the thermostat of your house when it's when it can be controlled at 72 degrees. And we do this all around the world. So why do we do this? And I will say that I don't know that anybody ever came back on the second day of class and said, I know the answer to that. But if you think about it, it's a fairly obvious one. We are native as a species to only one part of the world, and we've colonized everywhere else. Yeah. And so in order for us, in fact, to colonize out of equatorial Africa, I mean, we had to invent sewn clothing. We basically had to harness fire in order to keep ourselves warm. We had to build structures to keep ourselves either warm or cool. And once we had those things, once once we had clothing and structures we were in fire, we were able then to spread around the world, to go into northern Europe, to go into Scandinavia, to spread into Polynesia, to end up crossing Siberia into North America. But everywhere we went, that migration hasn't been long enough. It's only taken place in the last 45,000 years. We haven't gone anywhere long enough to actually change who we originally are as a species. And so what we've had to do is to take our original habitat with us everywhere we've gone. And, of course, what it's meant is that if you live in Canada or you live in Scandinavia, we have to consume an enormous amount of energy in order to keep ourselves warm to live in places like that. Or if you live in Phoenix, Arizona, we have to consume an enormous amount of energy to cool ourselves. Because what we're doing everywhere we go, and we're going to have to do this when we go to Mars, too, in another couple of decades, we've got to set the thermostat at 72 degrees (laughs) because that's the ambient temperature under which we evolved as a species. And that's why we are only comfortable in your wife's four-degree range from 68 to 72. So we've got to recreate that everywhere we go. I read somewhere that was talking about the human migrations around the world, and it was like to, to come, at least the current understanding, to, to come into what's now the Western Hemisphere, to come into the, the New World. The, scholar, the scholarly consensus is still that the first Americans passed across the Bering Land Bridge. And to get to that point, you needed to be able to live in the Arctic. Okay, So you're, you're passing through the Arctic. People didn't get here until, and the number could change through time, but it's sort of generally, it's considered to be that people first stepped foot here 14, 15,000 years ago. That could change by a handful of years um, as more sites emerge. But that the limiting factor, what kept us out of here, was that our, our movement up into Siberia, which allowed us to come across into Alaska, was sort of stalled out until the invention of the eyed needle. Yeah, that's sewn point, clothing. Yeah. yeah, sewn clothing. Like sewn clothing. Once the archaeological record in Eurasia starts to turn up sewn clothing That's right. with the eyed needle, and then people were ready to shoot up 
yeah. and cross over. And that, that very likely was a female invention. I mean, you know, we pride ourselves as men on, okay, we invented at addles and things to be able to hunt more effectively, but the the eyed needle was probably an invention of women sitting there working hides and figuring out how to attach them one to the other and make, in effect, fitted clothing because what you need is clothing that's going to fit tightly enough around you that it maintains your body heat. And so we had to create sewn clothing before we could ever basically not not even just live in these northern latitudes or extremely uh, far southerly latitudes in the southern hemisphere, but even to travel through them because yeah. we suffered from frostbite so easily. I mean, we're basically semi-equatorial apes, and we have a hard time functioning in these really cold situations. I was just reading, uh, I'm reading a book about de-extinctions, and it's written by a geneticist. It's about the, the possibility of like de-extinction, bringing back through. Yeah, People hear the word cloning, and it's just like not at all like, what they would do to, to to recreate a passenger pigeon or recreate a mammoth is not at all has nothing to do with shit you saw in Jurassic Park. It's it's <laughs> way more nuanced and complex. But um in it she was explaining that uh the author's explaining that the woolly mammoth is about as far removed from the Asian elephant as we are from chimps. Yeah. Meaning about we're about like genetically about ninety eight percent the same. But there's still but that holy shit, is that two is that two percent pretty major, man? Yeah, that two percent gets you Mozart and Einstein. Yeah. <laughs> so you know another thing, and this is going to lead to a question I want to ask you about. But um, when I read about the peopling of the New World, like I've read the books of the anthropologist, the paleoanthropologist David Meltzer. Yeah. And and David Meltzer talks about that passageway that humans, when humans went through the Arctic and passed through Siberia and into Alaska. First, it's like important to realize that they weren't like thinking like, "Hey, let's go to America." There was no, there was no like end goal. Well, it's, I mean, the, they weren't like you weren't like you were kind of you were going somewhere on a maybe a daily basis, but there was no like, "Hey, let's go f- colonize." Like on the Bering, what's now the Bering? What we think of when we look at like Beringia, or what's now the Bering Land Bridge? It's reasonable to think that generations might have been born and died on that land chunk with no concept of them being coming from somewhere and going somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, for one thing, it's 600 miles wide. I mean, we call it a bridge. And so that makes you think of it as this this narrow passageway from one continent to another. But at the time when uh, the the oceans were at their lowest ebb, Beringia was 600 miles wide. So, I mean, it was, you know, as wide as present-day Texas. You wouldn't be crossing through Austin and San Antonio and think that Texarkana and El Paso were the edges of a bridge. I mean, I think probably you're exactly right. There would have been whole generations of people who would have just thought of that as a homeland, but I think what would have motivated them to go 
in the direction that carried them into North America is that, I mean, I, this, I think this is one of the reasons we left Africa and began moving around the world is that we were endlessly looking for places that other people hadn't been yet because that meant the resources were rich. The animals were stupid. They hadn't been hunted yet. And so what you're looking for is a place where, wow, I haven't seen any other human camps for the last several days. I have. I don't see smoke from campfires up ahead. And so you go in the direction where there appears to be an absence of prior human activity, and that's what naturally led them finally into North America. That that's kind of what I wanted to get at to ask you about is sort of your feelings on that because you just can't discount the idea that at some point there was like some element of curiosity. Because population levels like like for instance there's this there's this idea that the reason that Native Americans were so susceptible to European diseases when when, when Europeans arrived much later was because they had passed through this like big disease-free corridor where you didn't have, like in the Arctic, it was cold enough and it wasn't densely populated. Yeah. So communicable diseases, like people lost contact with communicable diseases and, and, and lost their ability to tolerate them. So you can't be like, oh, like the Arctic was so filled up with people that there was warfare, right? It probably wasn't like that. It was probably just people moving. I think it was people moving. I mean, you know, around Lake Bacall in, in uh, Russia, there did seem to be where we think some of the Siberian populations that ended up in North America and became the ancestors of native people. That I mean, there is some evidence of, uh, you know, possible conflict that might have sent some groups on the move, but... Like 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 over resources, probably over resources. I mean, I think that's probably the ultimate motivation for these migrations that carried us around the world. Is that, uh, as I said a few minutes ago, I think human populations were sort of endlessly looking for places where the resources were going to be available solely to them, and they weren't going to have to compete with other people for them. And so that would have that would have drawn people in these grand migrations northward, for example, out of Africa through Turkey, uh, around the Black Sea, all the way up into northern Europe. Originally, because I mean, uh, anatomically modern humans, us Homo sapiens, we realized when we got there, the first people who arrived there found only Neanderthals there, only these. You know, I mean, related hominins, but at least not us. And I think that's what fueled the migration into North America, too. I will say, though, I mean, I'm I'm completely with you on this impulse that we have to see what's down the river and around the next mountain range. And, I mean, I think that's why... You know, we're that kind of species. We've been doing this kind of spread out of our homeland and around the planet for so long. I mean, and not just our species, but prior hominin species like Neanderthals have done it, that it's part of our genetic legacy to to go and see what's there. I think that's why we, we're going to end up going to Mars 
uh, and probably in other places in the solar system as well. But I think that's why everybody's so excited about Mars at the moment is, I mean, this is just one of those genetic pulls that we've had as a species. And I think it's been, it's a tribute to us in a lot of ways. It's one of the, maybe the most noble things that we have about us. It's that we are curious enough that we want to go see what it's like somewhere else. Even though we know in the case of Mars, we're going to have to wear helmets and suits and we've got to live inside polyurethane structures and you know, but I think people crossing uh, Siberia and the Bar- the Beringia and into North America said, okay, we're going to have to bundle up like you've never worn clothing before. And we've got to invent tight-fitted clothing with, uh, you know, with eyed needles. Uh, but if we need the technology to enable us to go there, damn it, we're going to invent it because this is who we are. To me, it's one of our our great tributes or attributes as a species. The guy that I'm interested in historically is the guy that's coming down the coastline. And like people used to be big on this idea that there was the ice free corridor that would have dumped the like the first um, the first Americans to hit what is now the the the, the lower 48. There used to be this idea, and maybe you can speak to whether this idea is dead, dead, or kind of dead. Is uh that they would have hit that they would have emerged on the Great Plains south of Edmonton, Alberta, through what this idea that there's this ice free corridor where everything to the east was glaciated and the, the coastline was glaciated and the Rockies were glaciated, but you had this this dry chunk of land that would have just eventually funneled human traffic down to this little belt and spilled them out onto the primo hunting grounds of the lower 48 and from there wreaked havoc on woolly mammoths and mastodons and now it seems that there, there's a lot more thinking or, or that it's a, a more fashionable idea that people were coming down the coasts and probably had basic boat technology but i'm interested in the feller and there was a first like like if you had a time machine you could go see if you're standing in any place, any place, and you're standing in California on the beach. There's a time you could have gone back in time and seen the first dude, or more likely a, a family group, coming down the shore. Right? It would have happened. It would have happened. And I'm interested in the guy coming down the shore that hits like a calving glacier. So here he is, never been here before. He's on the coastline, and all he can see ahead of him is here's an ice field. Right, which still they still exist today around you know southeast Alaska, and there's a calving glacier, and he's like, kids, um, here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna trust that this ends, and we're gonna paddle out and around and see what's on the other side, because that was a leap. Yeah, that was a leap, and shit like that had to have been happening. I th- I think that's probably in a way it's th- that's the uh, you know and and. And Christian and uh, Jewish theology, that's the Adam myth. I mean, that's it's the first man, the first woman to see the world. And, you know, in that myth, uh, Adam gets to name all the animals even. And so you can extrapolate, you know, from uh, the Bible and the book of Genesis to your you know, captain of his boat with his family 
going around this calving glacier and hoping there's something on the other side and landing on the other side and finding some land and seeing animals that they've never seen before and getting to name the animals. Yeah. And so be like, every, hunt, it, hunt, it like, be like hunting Yellowstone Park. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's with no park rangers, with no park rangers and, and all these new beasts, because I mean, that's one of the things that as we went around the world, we confronted not everything was the same. I mean, we were seeing this this grand diversity of life on a planet that was billions of years old where life had evolved as a result of shifting uh, and uh, continents breaking apart so that we ended up with everywhere you went, there were there was there were different life forms. You saw birds that you had never seen before. You saw animals you had never seen before. And I think that's probably one of the things, especially people who are as closely tuned to nature and observing nature as these folks would have been because they lived off the natural world. I think that would have been an ultimate fascination to land on the other side of a calving glacier and see a whole host of creatures you had never seen before. Yeah, like with the first guy idea, after people had after people had passed through the Arctic and started coming south, they were probably hundreds of generations removed from snakes. Alaska has no snakes. So you can imagine that there was a there again, there was like a guy. That's the thing I always return to is you, you get like you get when you think about history, you always think of it becomes faceless, right? But there was like a person who had no idea that a rattlesnake, right, was like bad shit. And he would have had to have been like the guy who made it and to, to the point where there is one. And saw that first one. Yeah, that's like right. What year and and there was no thing there was no cultural No, they they did have cultural awareness, but their cultural awareness is probably more um confined to like a set of experiences by just a handful of past generations like you weren't like always reading about wildlife on other continents no you're experiencing it in some like real-time way yeah and i think that would have been tremendously exciting i mean it, it excites me to think about it to step into a brand new world i mean and i i've read enough for example you know just from in a sort of a, a minor key version of this People passing in the 19th century from the woodlands of the east onto the Great Plains and encountering for the first time pronghorn antelope, for example, Mm -hmm. or coyotes or huge herds of bison. They may have seen bison in small numbers in the woodlands in 1800, but getting 200 miles farther west out into the grasslands and seeing herds that spread to the limits of the horizon. I mean, I, and, and those people, of course, left us a written account. And so you can read how exciting they found that. I mean, uh, you know, John James Audubon, who spent his entire life studying nature, hunting animals, shooting birds, painting birds, gets to a new setting on the Missouri River on the Great Plains in 1843, and 
I mean, I've always loved this passage. He wrote his wife that summer about all these animals he was seeing that he had never seen before and finally closed one of his letters with the line, I've got to stop writing. I'm too excited to write anymore. I, I can't say anything else. Yeah. I mean, and so there was that excitement is palpable through the written word of what people left us, you know, in the last 150 or 200 years. So it must have been the same thing when someone emerged into North America and saw, you know, giant herds of camels for the first time. Or, I mean, they would have seen wild horses, no doubt, Pleistocene horses, in Beringia, and they would have seen mammoths and mastodons in, in Beringia, but they probably wouldn't have seen giant ground sloths or hyenas or camels. And so they emerged into settings where they, they saw creatures like that. must have been exciting as hell. Some people have, I think, a hard time with the camel thing, like that we had like camelids on the Great Plains. But it's really like you kind of take for granted, like in the Andes that you have, llamas alpacas yeah and then some and then those are like domestic versions of some wild things but yeah so when you think about that it's like not as surprising that we did have a number of camel species on the great plains and dudes were hunting for them and dudes were hunting them yeah we had one humped camels not the double humped camels of of africa but the camelids from south america had migrated uh up the the Andes chain crossed into North America and basically spread across the plains as far probably as the Canadian border, at least Montana. I mean, they were animals that could exist at fairly high latitudes in the Andes, and so they could take fairly cold weather. So coming out of, I mean, if these early uh, inhabitants, these early arrivals in North America either came from the coast inland or emerged from an ice-free corridor and i don't think the ice-free corridor is totally dead i think they're like that idea is not totally dead no i don't think it's dead i think there are plenty of people who still believe that's the case but i think they would have encountered as soon as they emerged from that corridor a suite of animals that they had never seen before and i i love the description i i read fairly recently about um who these people might have been I mean, we don't know, for example, if, if the dates go back to 15,000, 16,000 years, I mean, we, we haven't really assigned a name to maybe the first three or 4,000 years of arrivals because they didn't seem to leave a technology like the later Clovis people led. Yeah. But the Clovis people left us 13,000 years ago and down to about 11,000 years ago. I mean, they left us a technology that seems to make it apparent that, uh, in the words of a, a recent scholar who described them, he, he described them as Northern Hemisphere wild people, kind of like Vikings, but coming out of Siberia. And these were people who would, who it was probably a very male dominated society, maybe dominated by warriors or hunters. And they were people who would have thrown themselves uh, into this new setting. And, you know, if Paul Martin is right with his Pleistocene 
the Blitzkrieg uh, hypothesis. Blitzkrieg yeah. hypothesis. I mean, it would have only taken them three or four hundred years to go all the way from the vicinity of Edmonton down to the tip of South America to Tierra del Fuego and wipe out millions of animals along the way. That's the thing that's so puzzling about. There's two that you just brought up that that, that maybe you can speak to a little bit. Is uh, one the way Clovis, the Clovis culture. They have this like diagnostic spear point. Okay, so when you when you excavate an old site and you find this spear point, the spear point is so peculiar. It's called a fluted spear point, where they would knock a channel out of each face of the projectile point. Um, it's it's so peculiar that it's regarded as diagnostic. And there are many projectile points that are this way, where people made it for a long time. They made it the same way every time. And then they moved on and started making different points that they were probably using in different ways and stopped making them that way. So when you find a clo- what, what how you know a Clovis site is kind of like, what did their spear point technology look like? Whoever arrived from, there, there's nothing like, I'm trying to think of how to put this. There's nothing like the Clovis technology in Asia. So, People think that it either is an American invention, that the people that first came down and colonized the New World, colonized what we now think of as the lower 48 and elsewhere, that they sort of coalesced into or developed into the Clovis culture and developed this projectile point suitable to the type of hunting they found here, or like an anthropological conspiracy theory is that the Paleolithic people of Europe who who some would argue it's coincidence, some would argue it's not coincidence, who had a point kind of like the Clovis point much earlier, 30,000, 40,000 years ago. They were making a point and hunting the same suite of megafauna in Europe with a projectile point that's kind of similar. So there's this idea that these fellers uh hopped in some skin boats and came over it's i think it's called the salutrian hypothesis or the salutrian connector came over showed the people here what's up the europeans came showed the people here what's up how to do this deal they died out and then what we regard as native americans came down afterward or had picked up their tricks of the trade from these european seafarers spring is a great time to do something with your family do some spring cleaning which i kind of started today outside planning outdoor activities which i'm always doing taking a little trip to hawaii with your kids for spring break which i just did which was great you know what else you can do for your family this spring you can shop for life insurance with policy genius make that part of your financial planning for the year i've said it before a thousand times i'll say it again when my wife and i when we started having kids we got serious about life insurance and man i felt so much better after we did with policy genius you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams even if you already have a life insurance policy through work it may not offer enough protection 
for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. What do you, is that, what do you think of that? I mean, like based on your career-long exposure to this stuff. Well, I, uh, I mean, it is in a way. I mean, it's a, con- it's kind of a conspiracy theory, but it's a conspiracy theory that actually got it in National Geographic, and so you've got to have some bona fides, some credentials to, to make it into a magazine uh, of that ilk. Um, you know, I, I. Some people call it racist. Well, I mean, if you make the argument that you know it's the europeans who kind of invent everything important and the native people just glom on to the critical technological elements then it does have sort of overtones of uh at least a kind of an ethnocentrism okay uh, that's a good word yeah you know so i i realize that we've not yet found uh a kind of a precursor to clovish technology 
in Siberia. And frankly, I wonder if that's just because, you know, there hasn't been great archaeology done yet in Siberia and that we're going to find it. Yeah. Uh, I tend to think myself that this is somewhat coincidental in part because of the difference in time frames. The Salutrian point, as you mentioned, is like a 30,000-year-old point. Uh, it's one of the points that, you know, anatomically modern humans had in Europe within 10,000 years or 15,000 years of coming out of Africa. Uh, and the Clovis point, of course, uh, occurs in time almost 20,000 years later. So it's the kind of thing that that the time frame connections make me think it would be hard to to come up with a linkage. Although, you know, you could, I suppose, it's in the realm of possibility to argue that some Clovis, that maybe these Europeans got into North America, left some sites, and people who became Clovis found those sites and attempted to emulate this kind of technology yeah. and did so very successfully. Uh, I don't know right now what the explanation uh, for this particular mystery is, but one of the things I really love about science in all its forms is that we endlessly have mysteries. And, you know, the mysteries, I mean, in my career, uh, quite a number of mysteries have been solved, but there are plenty of them out there that in all the time I've been doing this, we never have figured out what the answer is. And so that's kind of the great thing about all this is that there are things still to be resolved in the future uh, that other generations uh, maybe can come up with a really fine explanation for. This is one that I have to say, you know, I, I can't come up with a plausible explanation for why the Salutrian culture and point, which is a big game hunting culture, resembles the Clovis culture of 20,000 years later in terms of some not just superficial but fairly close similarities of the technology. Uh, the one thing I will say about the two groups is that even though they're separated in time uh, by almost 20,000 years, they kind of seem to have the same effect on the fauna oh. of the places they inhabit. I mean, it looks to me as if we finally invented agriculture in Europe because essentially people ultimately killed off all the major animals. And I think at a, a chronology that occurs at a later point in time in North America because we entered, we humans entered North America later in time, the same pattern follows. The big animals, once our presence is fully established, uh, in a location are going to go away. They disappear. And we began in what's called the archaic phase to sort of spread into smaller microhabitats and hunt smaller animals like deer and elk and so forth. But eventually, everywhere we go, we're kind of forced in the direction, ultimately, of adopting agriculture because we tend to overhunt animals. We tend to ultimately take them out. So it's simply not as easy to live as a hunter anymore. And uh, we end up becoming farmers. You know, I want to get back to that and, and, and press you on the part of that. But uh, before I do, I want to bring up like you're talking about the mysteries, kind of like the greatest mystery to me about the peopling of the new world, probably the greatest mystery to everyone, is that we have 
we've most people have settled in, on this idea of the the Bering Land Bridge as the entry point, but the oldest rock solid site we have, okay, the oldest site that like archaeologists and anthropologists just universally agree on as being the oldest human settlement site in the New World is in Patagonia. Yeah, it is. And uh, how much shit is missing between, <laughs> right? Like it really, you know, and if you talk to anthropologists about making more finds, they're not always like super optimistic about that we're going to make more finds because there's been so much, dis- like we've done so much road building and so much excavating and stuff that like, yeah. that like stuff that's going to get found has maybe kind of been found, you know, or you don't, you don't feel like people are like in the Arctic, like in Siberia right now, there's a lot of enthusiasm about what's the next thing that's going to thaw out of the permafrost, you know? Exactly. Like, we don't even know. Like, th- th- mysteries are going to continue to, like, we're going to ha- be excited about what's to come. But most people are, like, not real excited about the prospect of finding really good, intact, ironclad, paleo sites. But the oldest one we have is thousands and thousands of miles from the point of entry. So yeah. between Beringia and Chile, it's like, where were those people hanging out? Well, I think that that site in Patagonia, which, you know, the latest dates I've read for it, uh, you know, seem to place it between fourteen and 16,000 years ago, that it very likely is good evidence that people were working their way down the coastlines and I think the reason we don't have intervening sites along the coastlines is that as a result of the end of the Wisconsin Ice Age and the rise of the oceans, many of those campsites have ended up offshore and buried probably under 200 feet of water. Yeah. And so what we get then is an inland site in Chile, but there probably were campsites, fairly regular campsites along the coast leading down to that that particular point and we've just we've lost them as a result of the rise of the seas a detail i like about that site is they seem to have had tent stakes (laughs) tethering some sort of tent structure with a strip of mastodon hide yeah which is a nice detail i know it's wonderful isn't it um but so so to get into what you jump into what you got to do why is it like you mentioned that we could have hunter gatherer cultures that went 10,000 years without overhunting? Yeah. Like, what is it that happened? Like, if we accept that some species were driven to extinction with the arrival of humans, right? And we, like, and that's debatable. Well, let's just say that that was like, it almost certainly was a contributing cause, right? That, that a lot of these big animals, mammoths, mastodons, like, their demise is contempor- at least contemporaneous with the arrival of people. Suspiciously so. Suspiciously so. But then what? Why did? It, how did we then go 10,000 years without losing a continuous stream of creatures? Well, I think, uh, you know, so again, this is kind of a, the Pleistocene extinctions are, are one of our big mysteries. And they're a big mystery in part because this is our most profound ecological disturbance since humans arrived in North America. I mean, we 
talk all the time these days about the effect that modern society has on wildlife, on habitat destruction. But, I mean, we lost 32 genera of large animals in the Pleistocene. I mean, charismatic, big species, Africa-type analog animals, and hundreds of smaller ones. And so it was a, a kind of a sea change for North America. And suspiciously, we arrived at just the time that this was happening. We humans did. But the other thing that happened, of course, is that this was the end of the Wisconsin Ice Age. And so the climate was changing. And that's one of the great debates is whether or not climate was the primary cause, whether or not humans entering a landscape that had, humans had not evolved in, had not been in before, where the animals had not evolved any kind of uh, ability to resist us as hunters. I mean, that kind of thing is a debate that has been going on now for more than a century. And it's very likely that nobody is ever going to to definitively resolve it. Some people argue that, okay, it's partly climate and it's partly the human influence. The best example we've got for the human influence is probably with the mammoths. Uh, Paul Martin in his his uh, great book, the you know, really the last book he wrote and, and the book that if people want to read about this, I think I would encourage them to read, is called The Twilight of the Mammoths. And Martin was the major advocate of Pleistocene overkill, but he did concede that the best evidence we have is for this single species. For some species, we don't have very much evidence of human overkill at all. Because it, it doesn't turn up in campsites. It doesn't turn up at campsites. We don't find archaeological sites where people were processing horses, for example. And horses during the Pleistocene seem to have comprised in some places like 20 to 25 percent of the biomass of large animals. They became extinct, and yet we've barely found any kind of archaeological sites at all that indicate that, in contrast to the Salutrian people in Europe... Who were running them over cliffs. Who were running them over cliffs and corralling them. Mostly what they were doing was corralling them and killing them, and they nearly wiped out Europe's horses. In fact, some people believe that it was only the domestication of the last few horses that enabled Europe's horses to survive extinction. But... Unlike those Salutrian hunters in Europe, I mean, we, the North American hunters don't seem to have produced the kind of archaeological sites that show, at least so far, a large-scale destruction of horses. And yet horses became extinct here. So, I mean, we're still puzzling this out as to exactly what happened. But we somehow lost all these animals. Probably humans were involved in some significant way for at least some of them. And once they were gone, what we essentially had to do was to reinvent ourselves, to to make the step from being paleolithic big game hunters to the step of beginning to hunt smaller animals, beginning to rely more on gathering fruits and, and foodstuffs from the plant world and sort of instead of doing probably what the Clovis and Folsom people did, was, which was to migrate widely across the landscape in search of animal herds, we had to start settling down into local habitats. And I think 
and learn probably learning plant life too. That's exactly the reason I think to answer the question you posed to sort of launch this why we don't just keep causing extinctions is because once we settle down and start living locally, we start learning landscapes at a more intimate level. And what we begin to learn is the <laughs> the classic law of ecology, Liebig's law, which argues that you have to to base your population for sheer survival on the worst years that you experience in your landscape rather than the best years. If you calibrate your population based on the best years, then when the worst years come along, you're going to be devastated. Yeah. And so these archaic people who survive for seven or 8,000 years without wiping animals out and with, with a very effective functioning kind of economy seem to do it because they become consciously aware of what a local habitat is capable of providing. Not that they don't trade with people from other settings, but they understand what it's like to live locally, and that gives them these kind of packets of cultural information about what the local habitat is capable of producing and what the limits are in both directions, the best years and the good years. And what they seem to have done, frankly, was to d- have deliberately controlled their populations, mostly by engaging in infanticide, by killing excess babies when they were born, a kind of a form of abortion, really, kind of a draconian form of abortion that enabled them to keep their populations small enough that they weren't wiped out whenever bad years or a sequence of bad years came along. But starvation was still like almost certainly a factor. In these societies. Oh, I think people certainly suffered from starvation. I mean, I think we've got genetic evidence today of people with, uh, you know, f- some of the uh, groups in the Southwest, native people in the Southwest, have what's called a starvation gene, where basically uh, in contemporary times, eating modern foods, they tend to become quite obese because they had been in their past their populations selected for a type, a kind of a genetic type, that was capable of storing food to enable them to get past these starving and lean times. And today, when they've got abundant food, they tend to, if they're not careful, they become pretty obese. You know, this brings up something that we touched on this a little bit before, but I'd like you to, 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 to explain it more. Because that balance... You argue in one of your in one of your papers. Now the paper's been cited many, many, many times. You are like that that balance that people achieved that that ten thousand year balance that people achieved between um, humans and animals that they were hunting was disturbed or interrupted by the introduction of the horse. Yeah, maybe unsustainably so. Can you sketch that out for people? Yeah, I think, uh, and this is what I. I argue in this long durée story of of native people in North America, I think the coming of Europeans bringing with them, I mean, and I think it's a suite of things. I think it's, it's not just the horse. I think it's the arrival of the market economy, which uh, as the Europeans introduce it, it essentially compels people who had been 
who had sort of uh, lived off a, a diversity of resources in a landscape to specialize in the resources, let's say, bison robes, that the market economy wanted. The market economy might not have been interested in all the things they produced. It was interested in one or two things. And the market economy, as Europeans introduced it into North America 500 years ago, was very interested in the skins of animals. And so it tended to, uh, as European traders approached native people, they brought with them not only a desire to have these native people specialize in a particular product out of their resource base, but the Europeans also brought with them the goods of the Industrial Revolution because Europe had gone through this progression of reaching a point where you couldn't live by hunting animals alone and therefore having to become hunter-gatherers and then eventually farmers, Europe, having been occupied by humans out of Africa 45,000 years ago, had reached that sequence earlier in time than people in the Americas had having been occupied by a migration out of Africa only 15,000 years ago. And so the whole chronology of Europeans had carried their pattern through these various kinds of economies farther along to the point where they had begun to produce an industrial revolution, metal goods. They produced iron, for example. And native peoples all over the world who had not yet reached the Iron Age, when they were first exposed to iron implements, knives, hatchets, axes, metal arrow points, spear points, they were absolutely captivated by those goods. I mean, one of the stories I've often told is how when Captain Cook appeared off the coast of the island of Kauai in the Hawaiian Islands, in the 1780s, the natives who had been exposed to nails as a result of driftwood coming ashore, when they went out to meet Cook's ships, they clambered aboard, and Cook's men reported that the Polynesians immediately started pulling the nails out of every plank on the ships, and they finally had to had to push them overboard and make them go back ashore because they were afraid they were going to dismantle the damn vessels. They were so eager to get metal. Another story I told, I think I told this to Joe Rogan when I did the podcast with him, is about a, I was once a, an editor for a journal called Ethno History, and we received a manuscript that was basically the edited journal of an early trader who was in the Amazonian basin. And this fellow had said he that he had replaced a trader who had been working among the native people for two or three decades. And when he asked the question of his predecessor, how do I get people who have never been exposed to the European trade to trade with us? This guy said, it's as simple as anything. You just go into an area where Europeans haven't been before and tie an axe to a tree. And... A month later, go back. And he wrote in his journal that he did this several times, and when he would go back, there would be throngs of people 
gathered around hoping for another example of this kind of miraculous metal that they had found hanging from a tree. It's in some way, it's it's still happening right now, though, because if you read about groups, first contact groups coming out of the jungle in Peru and Brazil, it's like oftentimes they're, they're, they're coming out to the rivers, machetes and pots. Yes, that's it. It's metalware. <laughs> it's metalware. I agree. That yeah. stuff is nice. It's nice. And so, I mean, here in, in the Southwest, among these Puebloan people who made these gorgeous pots, I mean, and they made them hundreds of years before the Spaniards ever arrived here, and of course now sell them. I mean, I've got pots from the various Pueblos all over the house here. They sell them in Santa Fe uh, to people who want uh, to take home some beautiful object from the cultures of the Southwest. But when the Spaniards arrived with metal, these Pueblo people almost completely lost the art, some of them at least, of making pots because, hell, here's a metal pan. I don't really need a pot anymore. Here is an object made of metal that these Europeans will trade to me, and I don't have to engage in the painstaking work of making a ceramic pot. I mean, I was just telling the story to a group of people a few days ago about how uh, Adolf Bandelier, the archaeologist who came out to what is now Bandelier National Monument in the 1880s, hired Indians to help him dig up some of the sites, and they were unearthing pot shards there. And those people took them back to Pueblos like San Ildefonso Pueblo and showed these pot shards to people like Maria Martinez, who became the first of the great modern celebrated pottery makers again in Pueblo in New Mexico. So it was like fixing up an old car. It's like fixing up an old car and learning how to do it again. Basically reacquiring the skill to be able to do it, but having the availability of metal, they they had lost it. So when native people confronted these kinds of things, this market impulse to specialize in particular resources, plus the availability of goods that were made of metal. I mean, and those included things, of course, like the implements of war, like firearms. So if you trade someone a firearm, I mean, in the first few firearms that are traded to Native people are usually status goods, kind of like the turquoise we were talking about a minute ago. Only the head men end up with guns. But once you get them a gun, I mean, think of it. They can't produce powder. They can't produce flints or percussion caps later on. They don't have molds to make lead bullets, and they don't have gunsmiths to work on the gun if it breaks. And so suddenly they're snagged by the market economy. They've become dependent on it. From the point at which they start using guns, they now have to have someone supply them with gunpowder, with cap percussion caps, with lead balls, And from that point on, basically, tell us what you want us to harvest for the market economy, and we'll do it. I mean, in the way— Another factor had to have been, like, when you talk about that reliance, too, what it would have meant to neighboring groups that you were in warfare with. Well, I mean, I was just going to say— that would add your that would like add to your incentive to acquire this stuff. It does, and it means that the people who don't acquire it, 
who and there were some groups for example who who sort of saw okay this is a this is kind of a zero sum game because if we get caught in this we're never going to get out of it we're always going to have to have these these goods and we're just going to go further and further and further into this kind of economy and we're going to forever be pulled out of our ancient traditions and so occasionally you would have a band or a tribe led by someone who would sort of see the consequences and say, okay, I'm not going to do it. But the people in the next valley, if they did it and they armed themselves with, with guns and they had the resources that the European traders gave them as opposed to the group that was resisting entering the trade, I mean, it became an unequal struggle and the group that resisted ended up being overpowered and overcome by those who cooperated with the market economy. You know, things you're saying keep resonating to me with, with this article I've been bringing up a lot lately uh, by the journalist John Lee Anderson, who, who wrote this piece in, in The New Yorker about this group, this Amerindian group who's in the process right now of coming into contact with the wider world. And, um, I, you know, they're... they're live in the borderlands between Peru and Brazil and the young ones will come out and are interacting and and the young ones even explain because through some tra- through various translators they're able to, to communicate and the young ones explain um, when we get clothes you know when we go back the, the old people burn the clothes like there's that resistance built in where they're they're, they're talking about people um other generations being like, don't get tangled up with these people. Yeah. But it's irresistible. It's irresistible. Because they're and, coming out yeah. of the jungle naked. Yeah. It's irresistible. And, you know, so there, I, I think we can identify with it if we just understand that everybody is motivated by the same human nature, regardless of the cultural overlays that we have. These people that that you've just described from South America and that I was describing basically sort of using North American examples from the 18th and 19th century, these they're just like us. And so we can, if we think about it, we can find ourselves in exactly that kind of situation. I mean, I think we probably do, you know, in our modern lives on almost a daily basis. It's hard to resist a damn cell phone. I mean, I know a handful of people who say, okay, I'm not going to have one of those things. But, I mean, you're kind of disadvantaging yourself in a way if you resist the march of modern technology. Yeah, like if all your buddies are out drinking, <laughs> nowadays you can't find them without a phone. You can't it find It used to be you'd agree on a bar and everyone went there and stayed there, but now you'd never catch up with them. That's right. You got to text them and find them. And so... You know, I mean, it, it's the same principle at work, and I think it's been at work among us for 200,000 years. And maybe, you know, I mean, that, that, that's as far back as we know right now that our own species has existed. You know, if we knew more about the Neanderthals, it probably was at work among them as well, these same principles. So do you feel that, like, like in, and I know you focus a lot of your scholarly a, a attention, um, not exclusively, but a lot of it on, on bison. Do you feel that, let's say just the market had been introduced, would they have wound up at 
in the same place that we did eventually where we had effectively ecologically speaking we had exterminated the animal well i think would it have been possible yeah so i mean native people obviously they have an economy they have an exchange economy before europeans ever arrive i mean we know that uh, there were trading networks, just like I was describing for this turquoise, going from the mountain out the door here all the way down into Central America and the Caribbean. There were trade networks that stretched all over the Americas so that people that were producing goods, sometimes utilitarian, sometimes status goods, were able to trade for things they their local area didn't produce uh, and that they wanted, that they desired. And so that had been going on for uh, for thousands and thousands of years in the Americans, and that's probably, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I don't doubt that that may not be the first step toward what ultimately becomes kind of a global market economy, yeah. where everybody specializes in something and you have trade networks that span the world. I think in some ways... What native people in the Americans were engaging in was kind of a, a prototypical version of that, but uh, and of course they they also had what the market you know is characterized by in our own time, where some people accumulate lots of things for purposes of status, and so again to make the these native people who were here for thousands of years kind of more humanly understandable to us now. I mean, over in Chaco Canyon, when they were doing excavations over there, they discovered that the difference between the elites and the peasant population in Chaco Canyon, and the elites were probably priests and their families, was so dramatic that in some instances, the elites had such better food, such better nutrition, that they were living twice as long as peasants who were working the fields only a few hundred yards away. And there are instances where, well, there was, uh, there was one uh, vault where uh, evidently the wife or the wives of one particular priest in Chaco at one stage of the high development of that civilization, uh, this room was found with 60,000 pieces of turquoise jewelry. I mean, so this is a woman who was the Chaco inversion of Imelda Marcos with all of her hundreds of shoes. I mean, no individual needs 60,000 pieces of turquoise jewelry, but that was kind of a status statement on the part of Native people. So, in other words, I'm saying that they also had that. It's not that they were trying to make everybody somehow democratically equal. There were status divisions but they hadn't reached the point that the capitalist market had where so much of the natural world has been converted into kind of soulless commodities. When native people confronted the capitalist market economy, for the Europeans, the Animals whose hides they were trading for had no real relevance in Christian religion. Those animals lacked souls. 
they didn't have a plan uh, in guard, God's larger scheme of things. The native people, though, still accorded kind of sacred rights to a lot of those uh, animal species that Europeans saw as just kind of a congress of resources. Yeah. So one of the places where you have a kind of a jarring difference is there, where the European point of view is that, you know, these are just resources. These things are a kind of inert matter. Some of these animals are alive, but they're just dumb brutes, and their lives don't really matter. And native people, on the other hand, they sometimes struggle with this trade exchange because they still did regard these animals as being sacred, soul-filled kin, really, to them. So it was, that's part of the psychic kind of disaster that I think native people go through in the 18th and 19th centuries. And this happens all over the world and it'll be happening in among these groups that, that New Yorker journalists would describe, was yeah. describing in South America too. It induces a kind of a, a psychological crisis that undermines your worldview. And I think it's one of the reasons that native people in the Americas, and I mean, they had almost no choice but to participate in the market economy, but it really kind of rendered a catastrophic effect on them ultimately, from which I think some people have yet to recover. Are you familiar with the book Keepers of the Game? Oh, yeah. He he does a good job in there with the impacts of the beaver trade on native populations where here you have an amp like like it, like the, the the bison or buffalo looms so large in the mythology of the tribes i mean on the plains if you just look at like artwork and belief systems and oral traditions but he talks about these groups in the northeast that didn't really pay that much attention to the beaver you know it was it was like a reliable resource when you needed it but it wasn't like this defining thing and in Keepers of the Game, he gets into some of their, uh, some of the people's like just kind of puzzlement about why is it that they're so interested in this animal, and kind of the awakening to the idea that you could get a lot of money and get a lot of goods from this thing that we hadn't really paid that much attention to before. Yeah, that's a. That's It'd be like a, the guy who says the guy who's like been stomping on morels down in his cottonwood grove his whole life and never thought about them. One day, some guy knocks on his door and he's like dying. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's just like really, shit, man. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, you know? they're everywhere. But people really want these things. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know. I mean, that's a very interesting book. Calvin Martin was the guy who wrote it. That's the name. Of, yeah, I was trying to think of that. Name. Yeah, and uh, you know, and his. His argument was a really intriguing one because he kind of argued against some of the things I was just explaining, yeah. that the fur trade had an uh, an economic basis. He argued that it was based on it, – it, it was Indians participated in it for spiritual or religious reasons rather than economic reasons. And what he came up with was this very interesting idea that – on the eve of the arrival of the Europeans uh, in the in the Northeast, um, Indians began contracting disease, and it, they were diseases they had never encountered before. And what Calvin Martin argued was that from 
uh, itinerant European fishermen. They were being exposed, these native people were being exposed for the first time to European diseases against which they had no immunity. Influenza, smallpox, measles. And they're dying of these diseases that their shamans can't cure, that they've never encountered before. And in their religious traditions, they had uh, some of these uh, Algonquin-speaking people of that region had this tradition that they had a sacred pact with the animals, and the animals were supposed to keep humans healthy. And so... Martin argued in that book that the circumstances of when these people were getting these diseases, without ever having seen Europeans necessarily before, these are diseases that had worked inland, with no explanation other than their own cultural beliefs, that they blamed the animals for those diseases and therefore engaged in, he found one Jesuit priest who said the Indians are engaging in a war against the animals in retaliation for making them sick. And they discover that these Europeans want the skins of those same animals. So it was kind of a blockbuster idea when it came out, which was in about 1980. But I have to say... Was that how old that book is? Yeah. I knew came, it was older. came out in 1980. Did it, was, it, uh, was it lampooned? Well, it won a bunch of prizes when it came out as being this very imaginative and new interpretation of why Indians participated in the fur trade. But what happened very interestingly is that uh, a, another very famous anthropologist named Shepard Creck came along three or four years later and called on a bunch of his anthropologist friends to see if they could find some evidence anywhere else in North America that something similar had happened. And they couldn't find any evidence anywhere that there had been another incident like this. And so Creck published a book consisting of all the studies of himself and his anthropologist friends trying to extrapolate Calvin Martin's argument elsewhere and finding no reason uh, that it seemed to work anywhere else. Yeah. And he basically said, I think Calvin Martin took one document and he basically leveraged it into this argument without having additional supporting evidence for it. And it looks like he leveraged it too much. Yeah. When you've put out your ideas um, and, and published them in, in- previously in in journals and now in popular books some of them are kind of controversial like what sort of negative feedback or, or criticisms do you get when you call into question something such as you know the the relationship between native americans and buffalo when you call into question that it was maybe a little more complex than we are taught in elementary school yeah, well, you, mu- you must get some. You must get attacked. Uh, I will say it kind of worked like this, and yeah, I, you know, not necessarily attacked, but I've had some interesting experiences. Uh, particularly, I mean, I first published the, uh, that bison ecology article in the Journal of American History in 1991, and so sort of in the aftermath of that. Uh, some big news outlets, uh, you know, f- found out about it, and uh, the New York Times did a story 
about my interpretation of what had happened to the to the bison. And so um, this was in the early 90s. I had just gone to the University of Montana uh, to teach the history of the West there. And one day I was... Uh, I was at home in my apartment. I hadn't moved out in the Bitterroot Valley yet. I was still living in Missoula in a little apartment. And I was screwing around with something, and the and the phone rang. Just you know, and so I picked up the phone. And I mean, I say it that way because the truth is, with a cell phone, I mean, I don't keep the ringer on on my phone. So a phone ringing is an unusual thing for me. This was back in the nineties before. I had a cell phone, so I actually had a landline, and still didn't ring very much. I don't talk on the phone a whole lot, but the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and this sonorous, deep voice says, uh, "Is this Dan Flores?" And I said, "Yes, it is." And and the voice on the other end said, "Well, this is Vine Deloria. I have just read your article on bison ecology, and." What I thought he was going to say next is that, you know, you son of a bitch, how in the world could you ever argue uh, that Indians were involved in the destruction of the bison? Because Vine Deloria, I mean, for the members of your audience who don't know who Vine Deloria is, he was... Uh, I'm guilty of this. I'm waiting to hear. Okay, so let me tell you who he was. He was one of the most outspoken native writers in the period from probably the 1970s through, Vine, Vine died about oh, just a few years ago, so he was still alive into the 21st century, but especially from about the 1970s, he wrote books like God is Red okay. and Custer Died for Your Sins. I know that book. Yes. And he was teaching in the law school at the University of Colorado in Boulder when he called me. And what he said was, I would like for you to come to Boulder as my guest because every year I have a gathering of people from the tribes and we discuss the relationship between native people and animals. And I want you to come to the next one as my personal guest, the next one I'm having. It was just a couple of months away. But what I expected him to say was, I want you to speak to the assembled group. He said, I want to tell you, I don't want you to say a word when you come. I want you to come as my guest. You can sit right beside me. I'll introduce you to everybody there, but I don't want you to say a word. I want you to listen to what people say. And I said, I would be very happy to do that. And so I went to Boulder and uh, sat beside Vine Deloria, uh, out of the group of about 35 people, there was one other white guy in the audience. Uh, and Did you know his, sorry to interrupt, his motive, or what, did you think his motive at that point? Well, I, I thought what his motive was, and I, and I was right about it. He, he just wanted me to hear what Native people said about their relationship with animals. Right. Um, but not in an adversarial way. Not in an adversarial way. Not like, way. I'll show you, buddy. You know, and what he actually said to me when I was there is uh, he said, that piece you did is the most interesting piece I've read that anybody has ever done on bison. 
He said interesting. He didn't say the most accurate, the best. He said he found it interesting. Now, Deloria went on over the next few years as friends of mine in the profession began to adopt my argument about what happened to Bison. And for the sake of your readers, I'll just say that the Bison Ecology article from 1991 was basically a recasting of what happened to Bison in the West. And it argued that in opposition to our simplistic view that we had had for a long time, that after the Civil War, white hide hunters had gone out and slaughtered these animals, slaughtered 40 million of them or 60 million of them in the space of about 25 years, and that was what had happened to them. I argued that, in fact, the decline of bison had begun much earlier than that, that it was caused by uh, multiple reasons, in part a changing climate in the 19th century that produced the end of the Little Ice Age and therefore less conducive conditions to having large herds of bison on the grasslands of the Great Plains because the grasslands weren't as productive anymore. I argued that competition from horses for grass and water as horse numbers had grown, wild horses and Indian horse herds had competed with bison and that had drawn the numbers of bison down that introduced European livestock diseases like anthrax, for example, and bovine tuberculosis had gotten among the herds as a result of uh, the overland trails taking oxen across the West and spreading these diseases, that that had reduced the numbers. And that there was, in effect, a whole host of reasons, but that one of the reasons was also that Native people had gotten involved in the market economy and had begun hunting bison not just for subsistence, but in order to produce bison robes for the market economy. And so among these various causes, the role of Indians in the hunt was one of them. And other scholars in the field of Western history within the next five or six years, uh, people like Elliot West at the University of Arkansas and Drew Eisenberg, who at the time was at Princeton, yeah, I read one of his books. Uh, yeah, began writing books and articles basically using this same interpretation. And so during the 1990s, I would say by probably 2005, about 15 years after I published that article, essentially just about everybody in the field had adopted that argument. And so it's become the standard argument for what happened to bison in the 19th century now has, has replaced this earlier, more simplistic view that we had for a long time. And so as that's happened, one of the things I've noticed is that I haven't, it's been a long time actually since uh, anyone from the native community has, you know, uh, sort of stop me in an elevator or at a conference or something and wanted to express some concern that I was dissing how Indians had interacted with bison. So I think the native people over time, and there have been some of them I've talked to who, I mean, they were very perceptive about all this, and they understood that this very likely was absolutely what happened. 
because they had gotten enough evidence from their own traditions that people had hunted buffalo, in fact, for the market. Uh, so I think that even the native people, I mean, there are no doubt a few, you know, they're always, as I've learned from writing Coyote America, I mean, there are people who are going to troll you whenever they don't agree with your particular interpretation. So there are probably some trollers still out there on this this particular line of argument. But it's become the the primary explanation for what happened to bison. But And it's not entirely isolated because there's there's this idea that Europeans wiped out muskox in Alaska without ever stepping foot on the land. Just by saying, hey, if you get a minute, we'd like meat and hides. That's exactly it, yeah. And that was all that it took. Yeah, well, so, I mean, I'll give you another example that's directly related. I mean, it's a part of the bison story. I mean, we had argued that it was the hide hunt, white hide hunters after the Civil War that had wiped out bison in the United States. There never was a white hide hunt in Canada. Yeah. Canadian bison were hunted only by Native people and by the Métis, and yet the same thing. Explain the, explain the Métis. The Métis are a, a group of uh, mixed-blood Canadian people who were French from their European backgrounds uh, and several different tribes, Assiniboines and uh, Siouan-speaking peoples uh, from the Indian background, and they had become a kind of a, a third culture in Canada. And they had, an, but they had an almost like industrial precision to their hunts. They did. I mean, you know, and they had the same. I mean, when you read their traditions from the Indian side of the mix, they had inherited many of the same explanations of the sacredness of the animal and the use of all the parts of it and everything that you find among the, the Lakotas or the Cheyennes or uh, whichever group farther south you want to study. All of that was intact, but indeed, they did have a kind of an industrial approach. They went out in carts, uh, the famous Red River carts, yep. out onto the plains and hunted bison and hauled the products back to places like Ottawa, for example, and sold them. But there was never a white hide hunt in Canada, and yet the exact same thing yeah. happened to bison there as happened in the States. Interesting thing about those guys that I read about was uh, they would on the northern plains in the winter when things started to freeze up, they would dig these giant pits and fill them full of quarters, like bison quarters. Yeah. Wait till it all froze good and then bury that stuff. And they'd be eating frozen meat into July. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Digging it out of those. Well, I mean, if you think about it in the 19th century and earlier, I mean, all the way back to the time of, you know, head smashed in in Alberta, which where bison jumps go back 10,000 years. I mean, the great problem with killing large numbers of animals like bison is how do you preserve them? Because if you if you drive 400 bison off a cliff in Alberta in August I mean, you can only dry and salt 
a small percentage of the animals. If you don't have a way to refrigerate those carcasses, and obviously 10,000 years ago or even 200 years ago, they didn't. And so you had to be very circumspect about trying to drive enough animal or a small enough group of animals off a cliff that you didn't end up wasting an enormous quantity uh, of that kill simply because you lack the ability to preserve enough of the meat. But there seems to be cases where it's spun out of control. Like the southernmost jump, I believe it's the southernmost jump, yeah. bonfire shelter. Yeah. It's the, it. it was used a couple times, and one time it worked real well, and it got its name because all those rotting carcasses combusted. Yeah. Burst and, into spontaneous combustion. Yeah, it was hundreds of animals, and some small number were, as they say in the in archaeological parlance, disarticulated. I think is the word they use. Disarticulated. <laughs> that's for, right for butchering. Yeah. But then, but even then, it was like there was probably so few people and such strong resources that you did, there was no need to even like consider finiteness. No, and there were you know there were even arguments among people who did bison jumps that. So you can't really let any of them get away because if one of them gets away, they're going to go tell the other bison what your stratagem was. Yeah. And so when you jump them, you've got to make sure that you kill every one of them that goes off the jump. No, that makes sense because look at like the power of the lead cow in a herd of elk who carries institutional knowledge about where to go and we know that there are damn sure a lot of cow elk running around that are 20 years old who've done big migrations that many times they put together where it's okay to be where it's not okay to be and how to respond to certain stimuli yeah and yeah they are creatures that figure out what to do and what not to do so I could totally see that you have a population in a valley that would get to be like, uh-uh. Yeah, we're not going You're off You're not pushing us yeah. off that edge. We're not, we're not going to do that. And, you know, and I think that it that harkens back to what is best called native science. I mean, it's an observation that native people made probably from real-life examples. We let that cow get away and... Damn it, the next time we try to drive a herd off that cliff, some cow, looked like the same one, swerved them away and took them off in a different direction. And so I think it's it's kind of an observational uh, kind of effect, which is a version of science, where you observe an effect and you you relate it to a cause and you say, okay, that's why that happened. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to hunt and fool. 
who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. So, Coyote America. So that made the bestseller. That, that was the New York Times bestseller. Yeah, the paperback is about to come out. And as one of my friends uh, has put it, I sent him a, the dust jacket of it. And it's got uh, New York Times bestseller across the top. And it also was a finalist for the E.O. Wilson uh, right? Literary Science Writing Prize from Pan America, and so they they put a big badge on the front. And my my buddy uh, wrote me back when I sent it to him. He said, "Man, that coyote is wearing an awful lot of bling this time around." <laughs> <laughs> um, who trolled you on that? Like who who didn't like the ideas in there? Like what sort of person was upset by the ideas in there? Well, it's been uh, kind of, and I'm basing this on the reviews on Amazon. Oh. Uh, yeah, I know. So, Dude, right. But please. Yeah, but. You've been reading those? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I do <laughs> look at them because 
because I'm interested in that. Uh, yeah, but that just that could be just like okay, never mind. Go ahead. Yeah, it's right. It's somebody who's having a bad day. I mean, I had somebody write a review the other day that went something like. There was a review of American Serengeti, and this guy says, uh, or this person says, I think it was a guy, says, uh, this is on Amazon, says, this book is flawlessly written. It's a quick read. It's just, it's marvelous from start to, to end. Three stars out of five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know why? He was probably pissed because it took an extra day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> are you familiar, are you familiar with Paco Pads? Yes. I okay. Am. Yeah. So Paco Paz, this guy with Jack's weld, Jack's plastic welding, yeah. makes a wa- like a, a a sleeping pad. Okay, a very heavy duty, sealed, welded, welded you can use plastic it as a raft. It's yeah, you so can use thick. it to as a bench cover. Um, heavy as shit. Not a backpack wrap, but an indestructible sleeping pad that when you get it wet, you can just dry it off the towel. So. I was looking at it. And I was at the super. Like, there's a the biggest one there, and I see like, and you know, everybody knows these are great pads, but it's got a it's got like a two and a half star review. <laughs> okay, so, um, I mean that's weird how it had because it's only been reviewed a couple times, and I read them and it's like five stars, five stars, and some guy who's mad at Amazon about some delivery problem that he had had in the past. And had given Amazon a one-star review, um, but gave it to Jack's Plastic Welding, who hasn't sold many of these pads, and therefore gave the illusion of this being a shitty pad. Yeah, That's an example, but I don't think that when you read the reviews, I don't think you're capturing the general conversation around something. Well, yeah, I would agree with you uh, absolutely on that. I mean, the reviews are, you know, they're a slice, but they do give you. I mean, one of the things that you know, Amazon reviews, I think, do give you as a as a author is a little bit of an impression of how something is getting received. And so, to me, for something like Coyote America, uh, what I kind of see is that there are camps of takes on a book like that. And I relate that to the fact that coyotes themselves are extremely political. Oh, dude, yeah. Yeah, they are extremely political. Political as being gluten intolerant. Yeah. And so the fact that this is an astonishingly political animal means that there are people who have picked that book up or ordered it from Amazon and didn't really look too closely at what was going to be in it and opened it up and said, well, and and this is what some people have said. I was expecting a bunch of animal stories like Ernest Thompson Seton used to write 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead I had to read about how, I mean, and I just, I had, I was forced into reading this. This author forced me to read how coyotes have been poisoned relentlessly for decades and i just i didn't want to read that but he forced me to read it one star out of five (laughs) (laughs) so if listeners want to go we uh interviewed dan on i believe episode 34 or 36 yanni do you you have a way can you i was gonna say 33 
but um, yeah, when you scroll through, it'll say Seattle, Washington. It'll say Dan Flores, but it was thirty somewhere right there. I might come back and tell you what it was in a second here. And we talked at length about both the Dan's books that were coming out at the time. Yeah, Coyote America. I call them coyotes. We talk about that. Yeah, Dan tells me. Um, during that interview, why I call them coyotes, why he calls them coyotes, and you How- said something that I have I have referred to <laughs> quite a number of times since, which was that anybody who shoots one never calls it a coyote. No, yeah, yes, yeah, anyone who's killed one calls it a coyote. Which I'm sure there's some deviations. Just like there are political conservatives who are gluten intolerant, but generally it's a left wing disease. So there's some variation there, but. Uh, so go listen to that if you want to hear about the two books. And you had two books come out at the same time, American Serengeti and, and, your, and Coyote America. Coyote America. Yeah. And Coyote America is now coming out in paperback. Yeah. And American Serengeti is already in paperback. Uh, and uh, they're both also in uh, audio CD uh, form too. So check those out and check out the interview that we did. Did you find the number? 33. Oh. You've been awful quiet, yes. Just listening. Just listening. Go back and listen to episode thirty-three, which was really was one of it was a very popular episode for us. People loved it. That was and demanded really, and demanded more. Yeah, that was really uh, the first interview I did for either one of those books because uh, they hadn't come out yet. Yeah, they hadn't come out yet. I mean, I I, I ended up uh, getting an interview on. Morning America, or a Good Morning, uh, Morning Edition. I'm sorry. Yeah. On uh, NPR with David Green uh, for the Coyote book, uh, and uh, quite a number of other things on various regional NPR stations and so forth, and another podcast or two. But that was the the one that you did was the first one. Do you mind, uh, real quick, um, just sketching out which each of those books, just so people understand. Yeah, Coyote America is um, a, a biography of the animal, in effect, is what it is. It's an attempt to write a biography of the coyote from its evolution in North America, which goes back to the the uh, beginnings of the canid family 5.3 million years ago, through its long roller coaster-like history in America, uh, including about 10,000 years of time when it was revered as a principal deity by the native people uh, of the American West, everywhere that coyotes were found. Um, And I I do a chapter called Old Man America uh, in the book, which uh, takes on that story and and relates uh, in my own prose four different, what I think are sort of representative Old Man Coyote stories, uh, which are, if if one stops to think about it, this is the oldest literature in North America. This is our our oldest body uh, of literary stories. They were handed down orally and then finally set down uh, in print at the beginning of the 20th century. So that story, can, the Coyote's biography continues from that through its uh, first encounters with Europeans in the 19th century, people like Lewis and Clark, uh, uh, Mark Twain, John who did, Charles. Who didn't quite know what to call it. Yeah, they don't. In fact, the coyote is called for most of the 19th century the prairie wolf. That's the name that Lewis and Clark gave it. And so for most Americans, 
through about the 1870s or 1880s, that's what the coyote was called. Uh, but by the middle of the century, as as uh, American settlement had begun to get out to the southwest, to places like here, Santa Fe, New Mexico, they encountered people who were using the old Aztec word for the animal that had been Hispanicized into coyote. And so by the time Mark Twain writes Roughing It in 1873, coyote has become, at least among people who read his books, uh, kind of the accepted form of pronunciation. Although a two-syllable form had survived in much of the rural parts of the country as a result of the mountain men who were in the Southwest and who encountered that that same sort of transition from prairie wolf to a new form. And they called it, I think they thought coyote was a little bit too fancy. They called it a coyote. If you're from Arkansas, maybe coyote <laughs> sounds a little fancy. So... uh Anyway, we ended up with two different pronunciations, one sort of in the rural middle part of the country and then around the coast, uh, coyote. And, of course, when the Wiley Coyote cartoons come along, they began to convert a lot of people who uh, hadn't thought about how they were going to pronounce the animal's name into coyote yeah. pronouncers. But anyway, the story goes on through our attempts in the 20th century. I mean, this is an animal that we actually, in the United States, attempted to exterminate through a federal agency known as the Bureau of Biological Survey. It's still around now. It's called Wildlife Services. And this agency poisoned and invented poisons for the purpose, millions and millions of coyotes in the 20th century, only to have us discover, this is the rare environmental story that goes in this kind of direction, that no matter what we did, we not only couldn't get rid of coyotes, we not only couldn't exterminate them, but in fact, our efforts to do so ended up spreading them out of the West across all of the rest of the United States. And so they've now ended up in every single state except for Hawaii uh, and are in every large and small city in the United States. They've even moved into urban areas. So um, it's the story of, I, I argue in the book, kind of really America's, other than us probably, the most interesting mammal in North American history. No other creature has a biography that even approaches uh, something like the coyote has. And I kind of end it with talking about... Uh, uh, Wiley Coyote and what effect Wiley has had on American culture more than you would think. And even Walt Disney, who helped sort of change attitudes toward coyotes in the 60s, 70s, and uh, those decades by doing six different pro-coyote Disney films in those years. So that's what that book is about. American Serengeti is a, a book that's about the region of the United States, the American Great Plains, that once was the analog of East Africa, the Maasai Mara and the Serengeti with, I mean, it was one of the ecological wonders of the world up until about 1900 or so with this marvelous aggregate of large grazing animals, the bison that we've been talking about a lot tonight uh, that you, of course, have written about in a very successful book and uh, I've written about some too and uh, along with bison 
wild horses that were reintroduced, having evolved on the Great Plains, reintroduced by Europeans back to America thousands of years after they had become extinct, and that just spread in a, an instant uh, across this old ecological homeland of theirs. Uh, pronghorn antelope, gray wolves, grizzly bears, which uh, we think of them as mountain animals now, but they were originally were Great Plains animals. Yeah, didn't Custer kill one in South Dakota? Custer killed one in South Dakota. And one of the stories I tell people when I talk about this book is everybody has seen The Revenant uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, yeah, with that. Oh, yeah. my God, you're ruining my night. Well, I mean, the story. Setting that story. Yeah. Up in the dank-ass B.C. forest. That's exactly right. Instead of where it belongs, rightfully, on the willow-lined riparian zones of the American West was just like. On the Great Plains. People should be hung for that. Yeah, on the Great Plains. This story was a real story. It happened to you, Glass, but it happened out on the plains rather than in the mountains. Hugh Glass had no child. Yeah, he had no. Did not exact revenge. He had no Indian child. That's and did not take revenge. Yeah, confronted the people that left him, and was satisfied knowing that they had to live the rest of their lives that he was still alive the and guilt. they had left him. Yeah, with the guilt of having left him. But it happened out in the plains because that's where the grizzly bears were. So, anyway, this is a book about all these these creatures of the Great Plains uh, in the primarily the 18th and 19th centuries, and. Uh, I sort of take them one at a time. Uh, I do pronghorns in a chapter, wild horses in a chapter, gray wolves in a chapter, uh, grizzly bears in a chapter, bison in a chapter, and I do a chapter on coyotes, which were the jackals of the plains too. And then the book finally ends up going to our possibilities in the 21st century, primarily through what's known as the American Prairie Reserve Project in Montana, of trying to recreate and rewild an American Serengeti that will ultimately have all those animals in place again in a wildlife park that will be, we hope, something like twice the size of Yellowstone. It's a long-term project, but it's been underway for about 15 years. Not with, not without con- speaking of controversy, not without controversy itself. Plenty of controversy surrounding it, to be sure. Which weirdly seems to be like the main story that is picked up in the media is the controversy yeah, of it. Yeah, Which I imagine a lot of ideas probably go through that phase. I, I always like to remind people when I'm talking, when I, when I, do, when I give public lectures and I'm talking about the conservation history of this country, I always like to remind people how pissed everyone was at Theodore Roosevelt for laying out the national forest system. Pissed. They were. And then a couple of years go by and they carve his face in a big giant mountain. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but at the time, livid. Yeah, livid. I mean, and livid for, I mean, when he set aside the Grand Canyon as a national monument. I mean, you know, so we've got a review of the national monuments going on now. All the way back to uh, the uh, Escalante Grand Staircase yeah, in nineteen twenty-two years and three uh, reviewing uh, yeah. George W. Bush's monuments, That's reviewing right. Clinton's and monuments, Clinton's reviewing as well. Obama's monuments. Yeah, well, when Teddy Roosevelt decided that the Grand Canyon he was going to set aside as a national monument, 
I mean, there were people who were absolutely furious at the idea. And of course, it's basically a world-class site. It became a national park 14 years later and is a world-class site. So, I mean, what I really would love to see, I think is this American Prairie Reserve Project is the great conservation project of the 21st century. It's going to take decades, but I would love to see it as our version of Yellowstone National Park. I mean, we're the first country that ever creates a national park system, the United States is, but we passed over the Great Plains in doing it, and I think now is our opportunity to circle back and take this area that once was one of the great spectacles of the world in terms of wild animals and do like Africa has done and acquire for ourselves uh, this marvelous historic Great Plains Animal Park. Yeah, I should touch on because I brought up the idea of it, of its controversial nature, and I, I should rather than leaving that hanging, I just want to explain a couple points about it. Where you already have some large federally managed landscapes up there, so you have the Charles M. Russell Refuge along the Missouri Breaks, and and you have some some monument, some some a national monument, a national monument that was yeah. designated under the Clinton administration, yeah. the Missouri Breaks National Monument. Yeah. And what what the Prairie Reserve is doing is taking money, and, and critics of it always like to point out that it's generally outside money. It's money that's very important for people to express for whatever reason, that they're taking money from people donated around the country to buy land that just comes up for sale. So we're talking about willing seller, willing buyer. This is not it's not it, no one's like getting land for free it's not the government giving anyone land it's just they're starting out with existing parcels of public land and when properties come up for sale in the vicinity in the vicinity they go and say what you asking for the place the person names the price they're asking and it goes to auction or however else that happens and the american prairie reserve buys the land so the seller got exactly what they're after they got market value for the land. Oftentimes, the land, you'll, you'll also attain grazing rights on adjoining pieces of, of land. And so they will take over grazing rights and, and opt, to not, opt to not always exercise them through the grazing of cattle, though they do have a program out there that deals with grazing cattle on land. The criticism comes from people who look and they say that, and they, and it's understandable, and yet, and I think you need to be sympathetic to it. Where, where someone's like, so my great grandfather, my grandfather, my father invested very heavily in this idea and sacrificed a tremendous amount um, of work and, and effort to make the desert bloom. Right, that that we came in and raise cattle and help feed the nation and establish an economy that would allow there to be schools and, and towns and we built this out of nothing and to now have someone say thanks but no thanks is insulting to people um the american prairie reserve at one time used to it has this long line of ideas that are kind of strung out and at one time there's this idea of the Buffalo Commons, which is similar. I remember the writer Bill Kittredge in his book Hole in the Sky um, 
pointed out that going to Jordan, Montana, and mentioning the Buffalo Commons was a surefire way to get your ass kicked. <laughs> so that when I say that, that's the controversial part is it's controversial in spirit only. It's not that someone's like stealing someone's land. It's just someone saying like, how can you come and act like what we've done here isn't the best thing for the country? How can you say that you want to tear up our roads, raise our buildings, rip out our fences because what was here before us is more precious to you than what we created? Like, that's the idea. And I don't even really need to articulate the other side because the other side has to do with, you know, more unas- like some fairly unassailable notions of, of wildlife habitat and, and in this case, free market economies. But that kind of sketches out for you why it pisses people off. Yeah. Is, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a good expression of it, you know, and uh, like you, I think we can all be sympathetic to that. Uh, you know, I mean, I come from Louisiana, where my grandfather and my father and my brother were all in the oil business, but that is a business in Louisiana that uh, doesn't it, it doesn't have a a continuing application into the future. It's not. I mean, primarily the oil resources are depleted, and so in my generation, there's no possibility to continue to do that. I mean, it might be possible, I suppose, at some point to go in and frack or horizontal drill and manage to extract those resources. But what I'm saying is I'm from a generation that can't do what my father, my grandfather ended up doing for their livelihood. I think in Montana, on these ranches, there is a sense that they can continue to do this. And so that's, I think, as as you said, Stephen, that's kind of why there's a a sort of a spiritual resistance among some people to it. Um, I would say, you know, on the other hand, that it's a good thing to remember that this is not a federal project. This is not the federal government coming in and creating a new national park or a national monument. This is private enterprise doing what it's always done in America, taking private land and then doing what they want to do with it. So it can be, in a way, the American Prairie Reserve can be defended as part of this traditional kind of private enterprise, capitalist approach. It's just that what they want to do with it is not what private uh developers have often attempted to do. And so but, it seems fishy to people. Yeah, it seems now, fishy to people. if you just people. quietly bought a ranch, and then over time people realized that you didn't run cattle on it and that you tore up the fences, um, it might go unnoticed, but articulating a grand vision yeah. makes people uneasy. Um, and you, But anyways, you probably explain a lot of this in your I, book. I do, I mean, I and I try to place this whole story in the context of how 
in the 20th century, we tried on numerous occasions realizing that the Great Plains had been passed over for a kind of a, an African or Yellowstone-like wildlife park. We tried on several occasions to make it happen, and uh, in every instance, up and down the plains from West Texas to Montana, we've failed so far. And so this attempt by the American Prairie Reserve is probably the most promising uh, attempt that we've had in a long time, and it's taking the the possibility on in a whole new way by doing this kind of private enterprise buying up ranches when they come up for sale with the idea of ultimately cooperating with the managers of the federal lands that are in the vicinity along the Missouri River and somehow managing this as a whole in order to reintroduce all these classic animals that we sort of thoughtlessly, heedlessly a century ago obliterated from the landscape. I mean, we did it almost without a second thought a hundred years ago. And now we're rethinking what we did and hoping that we can somehow restore this. And so, uh, as I said, to me and those of us who are conservation thinking kind of people, this is one of the most exciting things that's happening in the West these days. You know, uh, when you talk about doing it without thinking about it, I recently had occasion to speak with the with a conservation leader, Jim Poswitz, and he spells out that time of us realizing what we were doing through the story of Theodore Roosevelt, the first buffalo he killed, and the second buffalo he killed, and sort of how he that's a good way how to he it. interpreted those two actions. One being near is it Medina, Medora, Medora, North Dakota, yeah. and one around Henry's Lake. Yeah. Um, the second time, and sort of the first one, he does a war dance around. He danced it. around it. That's right. And the second one, um, and by this time there are like none left. And the second trip, he has a conservation epiphany. Um, and that's one of the many things that makes that guy's life interesting. That ties into the things we're talking about is being this trans like one of these guys who was alive at this like very transitional moment where he was in some ways engaged with the end or kind of aware of the end and then was one of the people who said like whoa, 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 whoa at just the right moment i mean just the right moment yeah and it became the seed when he became president for those national bison refuges that he set up and the first one in southwestern Oklahoma, the Wichita Mountain ones, and then the next one in Montana. And they were, when they did that one, they were trucking animals from the Bronx Zoo. Yeah. We That's how bad it. things got. When yeah. they were trying to set up some buffalo parks in the West, they were they were getting animals from the Bronx Zoo and shipping them by rail back out West. Yeah. Well, William T. Hornaday, who was the director of the Bronx Zoo, had had the foresight. I mean, he had written the first great book about what had happened to bison. Um, the extermination the of the... extermination of the American bison, yeah. And he had had the foresight to start through people like Buffalo Jones in Kansas, Charles Buffalo Jones, who had been a former buffalo hunter and then was stricken by guilt 
and said, as a result of my wickedness in killing so many, now I'm going to try to do everything I can to save the last few that are there. Went out and roped them and fed them on cow's milk. He did, and provided Hornaday with some of these animals that went to the Bronx Zoo. So one of the reasons, of, as you know well and have written about, they were trading them around, of course, is they were trying to make sure, I mean, the, the animal population of bison had, had gotten so small that they were afraid of genetic bottlenecking. And so they were trying to spread the few animals that they had left widely to get as dispersed a number of genes from the original population in these uh, particular little groups of animals they were trying to build herds up from. There was a there was a hunter during the the big slaughter in the Southern Plains. There was a hunter that was who grew sickened by it, like what Buffalo Jones later claimed. He grew sickened by it and swore to call it off. But then in the morning, he explained how he was hearing all the gunfire. It was like, fuck, man, they're doing it. They're going to do it whether I'm there or not yeah. and, and jump back in. Yeah. Yeah. Not too many of those buffalo hunters ever seem to express much remorse, you know, and some of them actually became pretty combative about what they had done. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's the interesting thing is like when Hornaday was out trying to get some, he was trying to collect specimens. So at first he was trying to collect dead ones and he, he took the Northern Pacific had just recently made its way to Miles City, Montana. And Hornaday took it out and then struck off with a wagon and cart and a, and a guide he was traveling with. And they went up into the Pumpkin Creek area to see if he could shoot a handful as zoo specimens. And he's riding through the bone fields yeah. trying to find one. And in his book, he points out that there were still guys, there were still hide hunters in Miles City convinced and that was like that was i should put out that was the last of them that was the last big congregation and i think it was killed they started killing it in the winter of 81 82 the summer of 82 i think a bunch were killed uh on one of the reservations some of the sioux got their where they gave them some of their guns back and let them leave the reservation to go on one last hunt and they killed a thousand yeah and then that was it to the point where Hornaday was out scrounging around hoping to find a couple. He points out that many of the people in Miles City were hide hunters who just were waiting for the next big push to come down out of Canada. Yeah, well, some of them had no seen idea a what herd. Done. They had seen a herd cross the medicine line into Canada, and they were convinced that that herd was coming back soon. And I think, as Hornady says, he already knew when they were telling him that what had happened to that herd because the Métis had wiped out that They'd herd. They'd gotten onto it. Yeah, they were. That herd was already gone. But these hunters, uh, I mean, and he he met one guy sitting around a campfire one night, Doc something or other, who wandered into his campfire and sat down. And this guy was firmly convinced that all he had to do was sit around and wait for a few weeks or a few months or maybe till next year, and there was a gigantic herd of bison that was going to come down from Canada, and it would all resume. Yep. And instead, as he explains, these guys kind of fell into shopkeepers, ranchers. and They had to uh, retrain. (laughs) And eventually... They never did come back. Well, when they did come back, they came from the east by rail. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, all those guys had to retrain. I mean, so this is a, a yet another one of those instances in American history where the resource is finally gone, and you just have you you have to face it. You got to retrain and do something else. You know, there's another one that you might know about too. Another little remnant herd is the story. Are you familiar with the story of the guy Sam Walking Coyote? Oh yeah, Sam Walking Coyote. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, had gone had gotten in a fight with his wife or divorced from his wife and gone out to the milk river and hunted and somehow came back home with a couple calves calves that followed him and that became the source animals for what is still the national bison refuge or national bison is the reserve or refuge it's uh, I think it's properly a refuge. It's they're they're supposed to be administered by the Fish and Wildlife Service as a national wildlife refuge. Yeah, yeah. And so, that so that became Sam Walking Coyote's animals from the milk became that source herd, and then later that herd in the Flathead Valley became the source herd for the original Alaska introductions, not reintroductions, but introductions. Is those animals spun off, and the Canadian herds too, right? I mean, I think the Canadian government ended up buying that for that wild Pablo Allard, yeah, herd, and that and that was the um, I can't remember the name of that. What that what that herd when that sprang off, what that herd became. All right, so check out Dan's books. <laughs> You'll learn about all kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and 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 Dan was hugely influential in in um fostering my interest in these subjects uh yanni you haven't said shit nada is there are you built are you like built up with like <laughs> pent up thoughts i had those nice thoughts when we took our uh pee break there earlier but um which were that uh dan was talking about the uh the trade goods you know that the the market brought across the atlantic and we were just down in guyana and how the, the parallels was were so similar yeah. Like they're still using their native bows, arrows. They like making a lot of that stuff, and and they're they're big on um, like they know the importance. Of, I think now of, of sort of keeping that culture around, yeah. Be- because people like us are interested in that, you know, and, and there's value to that. But the one thing that has changed is like the metal, right? Like they like files and machetes, and when the machete wears out, they turn that into a. a uh, an arrow point. I think you, you were saying, mm-hmm. right? You talked to Rovin about how he made, did he ever learn how to make the points out of no, wood? No, he remembers people using um, where their bow and arrow gear was all native material. Now the only non-native material is the tip, which is steel. But he remembers the people using the, basically a, a point made from, cut from bamboo. And we saw those in, in Bolivia, those bamboo tips. So in one generation, that entire progression he's experienced then. Huh? Yeah, well, check this out. So I was there five or six years ago, and they do, they hunt for fish with bows. It's one of the main ways they fish is bow fishing. I was down there five or six years ago trying to sell them on polarized sunglasses. Okay? And I'd have everybody put them on, but check this shit out, put these sunglasses on. Uh, you can on. see those fish, huh? Well, they didn't like the feel. Okay? And also shoes didn't want shoes five or six later five or six years later i'm not i'm not i'm not even kind of joking everybody 
polarized sunglasses all day long and, and in five or six years shoes. So you single-handedly Not, no, no. have replicated <laughs> me and many other people, me and many other people like me. But it was just like it was they were you know what it is, and, and Giannis brought this up earlier. It was ecotourism. Where just a constant steady exposure to well healed outsiders who are coming down and a lot of them like because it was still cutting edge location a lot of them industry folks okay who come down with tons of shit huh. and are and just like hey man i brought a bunch of sunglasses down when i got back when i went down the first time the first thing i did when i got home was sent down i'm not kidding you, i sent down a shitload of files because they were talking about what a bitch it was to get a file. And that's how they made their fish points and shit. And files were the dope, right? But it was very expensive to get a file and hard to find a file. And I sent down files. Now, I'll also point out that um, my main friend on there, he has an email address. So it's all very confused where he has an email address but makes his own bows and arrows from native jungle material and if he wants to catch a fish he goes to a to a palm and finds a fruit on the ground and cuts the fruit out open and pulls out a larva and takes the larva and puts it on a hook and catches a fish and uses that fish to catch another fish and that fish catches the big fish that he eats and he hunts and fishes he hunts fishes and farms year round, except for on occasion when dudes like us go down and want to go out and see how they do shit. And them taking guys like me out to show how they do shit corrupts how they do shit. Uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. Or from their perspective, it doesn't corrupt it at all. It's just great stuff to know. It's great. The stuff same way know. if someone came to me and they're like, "Hey, man." Um, uh, you know, you guys wash your dishes by hand every night. Why not, uh, when you buy a new house, fit that some bitch out with a dishwasher? And I'm like, hey, that's a great idea. These dishwashers are sweet. So, from like, it's like a kind of colonialism, not colonialism, but it's like a colonial perspective to sort of be like, I hold the power to decide that you will or will not be exposed to these new materials. Be exposed to it. I mean, in fact, they're down there like, hey, you know, it turns out uh, I got these polarized sunglasses and they're great because I can see fish and shoot them better. It's pretty innocent. (laughs) It's it's, what it is, I think, is uh, I would just say two things. I think what you're describing is a perfect description of probably what happened in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries when Europeans went around the world and contacted indigenous peoples in the way we were talking about with how the market transformed the buffalo hunt uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. I think this is just a kind of a microcosm description of it. And the other thing I think I would say is that, you know, we're all in the same boat because technology is proceeding so rapidly all around us that we're all getting introduced, not on a daily basis necessarily, but maybe on a monthly basis to new technologies that 
we can either accept or reject, but if we reject them, a lot of times we end up kind of disadvantaging ourselves. Yeah, because compared every, to everybody everything else. shifts without you. Yeah, it shifts without you and it leaves you behind. And so I think the truth is we're all in this same boat. The world is going at hyperspeed. Technology can easily leave somebody behind in their lifetime or either maybe in a decade or in a couple of years. And so we're finding ourselves sort of living that same experience that you've just been describing then and that I was describing earlier from centuries ago, uh, and it's happening all around us. Yanni, I feel like I hijacked your concluding thought. No. You never do that. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh yeah, it, it is like it's a perfect parallel except now instead of like other the other tribes saying, No, I don't want the tools or, or the metal, you know, the machetes, they're sort of like Rovin's group has like very much adopted the eco tourism and that's giving them wealth and like helping his village prosper. It's like the the school there I mean, yeah, it took us – actually, it didn't take that long to get there. We got there from New York in 24 hours to the village itself. Um, and that included a couple-hour boat ride, you know. But inside the village, you, when you go by the, sco- the school, it's like you look in the window and you're like, oh, well, that looks like every other school I've seen recently, you know, kids dressed well. And they were in uniform, yeah, weren't uniform. they? And, uh, you know, happy, A high, a high teacher-to-pupil ratio. But he was telling us that the other, you know, camps along the river hadn't really got gotten into that yet, and it's created some jealousy. You know, their village is actually growing. Yeah, well, not just jealousy, but even inspired a a curse from a nearby shaman. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, you know it's it's happening at differential rates for everybody, but. Uh, I think we're all kind of caught in it. And maybe it's useful to see indigenous peoples confronting it because that kind of is a mirror back on how all the rest of us are having to grapple with the speed of technological change. My handful of experiences down there has um, changed in a remarkable way how I view parts of our portions of our own nation's history that I'm interested in the, the it, it, all the parallels someone could very easily come in and point out that they're that they're uh false comparisons false analogies but um uh cuz it's not perfect right the timelines aren't perfect but it is it, it's just fascinating particularly the evolving relationships of people and animals and the market influence and to see people um, going through a very speedy version of what we went through of within a single generation being engaged and being introduced to market hunting, engaging in market hunting, realizing where market hunting's going and looking for a sustainable model to have that play out in a person's lifetime. Wow. You're seeing like, like in some way you're seeing 
a hundred years of American history compressed down really tightly in part because of the technology you're talking about where ideas can cycle in so quickly. Yeah, it's both ideas and, uh, you know, the goods, the technological uh, possibilities all at the same time. And I think you're exactly right. We're seeing it in a a sort of a hyperdrive microcosm replicating the last 500 years of world history but happening in the space of a few years. Yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad. Any other final things, Giannis? That's intense. (laughs) That's my final thought. (laughs) Dan, anything you'd like to add? Thanks for having me on, Steve. Thanks for coming. Thanks to both you guys for being here. This makes it easy to do a podcast when we're sitting here on my couch. Yeah. Yeah, again, I want to thank you, and I, and I really want to implore, I really hope people do go check out your books, especially if, if you've always, you know, if you tend to only, and I'm guilty of this too, if you tend to only view wildlife from the perspective of hunting, right, and, and through that kind of media, I think it's helpful to to, to step into um, a historian, like a, a trained historian shoes and look at wildlife a little bit, because it uh it adds a layer to it that you don't get in in the kind of normal conversations about wildlife and wildlife management that we engage in um where we're talking about like what we're doing now what's going on now threats that wildlife habitat now to step back and go like oh so that's the that's how we arrived at where we're at those are the things that shaped our understandings the mistakes we've made the successes we've had um, I think it's really enlightening. So, yeah, hopefully you, you go check out Dan's, uh, not just his not just his books, but you, if you want to dig into the deep web, you'll find some of your academic pieces from your, your past life as a peer-reviewed, journal, or a peer-reviewed historian. So, again, that, uh, Dan, thank you very much for joining. Thank you, man. And uh, also, man, I just want to remind everyone, please um, go and give uh, – Go and give a big-ass five-star review, Meat Eater Podcast. Thank you very much. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii, and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping.